I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles for our Old Testament lesson this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 29. We actually had the second half of this chapter read earlier uh, during the reading of the law. A little bit of a lengthier section, but uh, I think this chapter is really important as we understand not just the backdrop to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but really the life of Israel under the Old Covenant. That there is a curse of the law that hangs over all who rebel against it. Deuteronomy chapter 29, we'll read this morning verses 1 to 9. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides that covenant that he made with them at Horeb. Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your rise in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all this land, the great trials that your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out upon you. Your sandals have not worn off of your feet. You have not eaten bread. You have not drunk wine or strong drink. So that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you came to this place, Sion the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Again, noticing there uh, the words of, where did it go? Verse 4, really the emphasis there that we'll see Paul highlight in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So with that in mind, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, this morning we'll give our attention to verses 12 to 16. Just five short verses, but really dense verses. But as this exists within a broader context, one that we have spent already now two or three weeks in, I'd like us to begin reading in verse 7, as Paul, again, again, uh, contrasts the ministry of Moses versus the ministry of the Spirit under the new covenant. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, we'll actually read through the end of the chapter, but just focus this morning on verses 12 to 16. Paul says this, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, that is, that ministry under Moses, then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has, ha- has come to have no glory at all. Why? Because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. 
Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because it is only through Christ that it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we do ask that you would, by your Spirit, enlighten our eyes to see those truths that are so clearly propounded and put forth in your law and in your Word. Help us to see that we might believe what you want us to believe and that we, we, we might do what you've commanded us to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think there's a certain awkwardness in this particular passage given our current cultural climate. Uh, I want to say from the outset that this passage has nothing to do with face masks. And yet at the same time, there's a central feature here, isn't there? It's, it's, the, it's the driving metaphor, it's the driving image that Paul is in fact giving, that Moses has his face covered. And again, what I want us to understand is that I am not giving a veiled reference, pun intended, to this particular current political debate, right? I think this provides us with an important uh, uh, path forward and thinking, how do we read our Bibles? Are we going to be like uh, the quarterback who he, who he has, you know, Philippians 4.13 uh, splashed upon uh, his helmet that says, I could do all things through Christ, who lets me rip, rip Bible verses out of their contexts? Or do we help to try to understand what the Bible actually says in its own given context? By the way, I actually like it when football players have that, but... Um, but we, we do need to understand uh, this passage in its particular context. So I just want to clear away some type of underbrush. I know the, these are difficult times, and, and I don't want anybody to think that I'm giving some type of subtle references to what we should or should not be doing with respect to that. That is not the point here at all. But the passage before us remains the passage before us. We cannot skip over it. And so we have to consider what it is that Paul is talking about. The fact that Moses is wearing this veiled, uh, this veil over his face, what is it that we need to do? What we need to do, I think, is to think theologically about these themes as they are presented in Scripture. To help us line upon line, understand a passage within its given context before we try to apply the context to our daily lives. And what we see here in this passage is Paul is referencing, as he has been throughout all of chapter 3, the giving of the law at Sinai, that great event in Exodus chapter 32, in Exodus, uh, Exodus 32 to 34, where Moses descends from Mount Sinai and the glory of the Lord shines on his face to such an extent that he actually has to cover his face in the sight of the people. This is not an incidental feature to this historic moment in the life of Israel. So we must ask ourselves in Scripture, what are the purpose of veils according to what Scripture says? 
Well, I think what we could say in its most basic sense, that in some sense, a veil in Scripture, and even today, it hides something. We think of the various reasons that attend it, even uh, in uh, uh, our current society. It, it conceals one's identity. We see it in the Old Testament as well. You think of the story of Judah and Tamar, uh, that really uh, very odd story in the book of Genesis, where Tamar uh, conceals her face uh, to, disclose, to, to, to veil her identity from her father-in-law. It's a mode of deception. In, in common parlance, we could speak of having veiled motives. It's a euphemism for deception. Or to have one's intentions or actions, as we might say, shrouded in secrecy. We recognize the language that that is used in common parlance. We think of a story such as the Wizard of Oz. You think of the big reveal as the curtain is what? Drawn back and you see the man behind the curtain. Well, in those instances, deception is in fact involved, but that's not the only reason that we have veils, is it? You think of a widow who wears a veil at her husband's funeral to mourn her death. Or you think of a bride wearing a veil on her wedding day, waiting for that great and glorious moment where her face is finally revealed to her husband and to the public. But perhaps most importantly in Scripture, we have the Holy of Holies, the great veil that hides the presence of God from the rest of the world, a veil which separates the glory of God from the rest of creation. I mean, to think about that, what would happen if the veil were removed under the old covenant? What would happen if there was no provision having been made for sin and God's glory decided to be manifested in its full radiance upon the face of the earth? What would happen if God revealed his glory unveiled to a sinful human race? The veil were removed from the Holy of Holies and it revealed God's uh, un, unfiltered presence, so to speak. It would lead to the destruction of the whole human race. Something Paul, uh, the Lord himself tells Moses in Exodus. In this morning's passage, Paul calls us to consider the veiling of Moses and its purpose as a purpose that is something similar to what we see with the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle. As this is given, not as a mere metaphor, not as an allegory, but as another instance in Paul's ongoing argument that demonstrates the insufficiency of the old covenant and the permanent and greater glory of the new covenant. It's a dense passage, so I think this morning we're going to need a roadmap to get a, a sense of the contours. First, we'll consider the matter of boldness in verses 12 and 13. Secondly, we'll consider the matter of hardness in verses 14 and 15. And finally, we'll consider the matter of repentance in verse 16. So boldness, hardness, and repentance. Now again, as, as we kind of immerse ourselves in this chapter, in my uh, opinion, one of the most important and critical chapters in the New Testament to help us understand the nature of the new covenant. Paul has begun to contrast the ministry of Moses under the old covenant with the ministry of Christ under the new covenant, as Christ ministers by the Spirit, Christ ascends on high, and now He pours out His Spirit on His church that the work of Christ, in one sense, continues. And here Paul has made this argument, a long and drawn out argument, that the new covenant is far better. It is more effective. It is more permanent. It is more glorious, as we saw last week. 
Now that the Spirit has been given, God's law has not only been inscribed on tablets of stone, but it's also been inscribed on human hearts. It is a work that runs much deeper. It's a tremendous blessing to be enabled to walk in the Lord's ways uh, and to be empowered by the Spirit to keep the Lord's commands. But Paul says here in verse 12 that since we have such a hope, we are very bold. That's how the ESV puts it. Quite literally, the text reads in the Greek, we proclaim with great frankness. We proclaim with great openness and plainness. In other words, what Paul is not saying is he's not saying that unlike Moses, who was timid, we speak with confidence. That's not what Paul is getting out here. But it is an odd contrast, nevertheless, and one that I think forces us to slow down and think about it. Unlike Moses who wore a veil, we proclaim openly. That's the nature of the contrast that is being given. Moses wore a veil, we did not. What does Paul mean by this? What is Paul's point? Again, we should not think of going immediately to false applications concerning uh, the the present pandemic. That is not Paul's situation here. Consider Paul's analogy where he tethers this distinction between being veiled and being unveiled with the ministry of Moses at the tabernacle. You think of Exodus chapter 32 uh, to 34. Moses, uh, as, as he has ascended to the top of Mount Sinai, what does he say to the Lord? What is his major request? Lord, show me your glory. What else is there to see or to behold? A great prayer. And yet, what is the Lord's response to Moses? If I show you my face, you will surely die. If I show you my glory, unfiltered, you will perish. No man can see the Lord and live the New Testament tells us. And yet, what does the Lord then do? He veils himself. He says, I'll I'll pass by and I'll declare my name in your sight. And you will see uh, the, the, the back of my garments, as it were. The Lord veils himself in some fashion. And he passes by Moses and he allows Moses to pass into the temple behind the veil. And even as he speaks with the Lord face to face, as a man speaks with his friend, there is in some measure a hiddenness to this entire thing. And yet, with, with the, the, the kind of the peak behind the curtain, so to speak, Moses sees the glory of the Lord in some capacity, to such an extent that his outward face is transformed. It's kind of like the, the moon, uh, a full moon reflecting the light of the sun. It's not a, a, a light that Moses has uh, uh, embedded in himself. It's the fact that he has now been, uh, he's, he's experiencing a sense of spiritual sunburn, as it were. He's been in, in the presence of the Lord, and now his face radiates. And he sees the people, and the people see that, and they are frightened. You know, if the Lord's glory could be compared to the sun and Moses' face to the moon, a moon that reflects the sun in just a, a faint portion Think of how great the Lord's glory must be that the people would look at Moses' face and be terrified. That they would look at Moses' face and tremble. And so the glory must remain veiled so Moses covers his face. And so Moses, in one sense, serves as a picture and miniature of the whole story of the tabernacle that we see in the book of Exodus. You know, on the one hand, we want to say that this veiling is an act of mercy. 
If God's glory burst out from behind the curtain, the people would surely die. That's one of the things the Lord tells Moses. No man could see my face and live. So the fact that the Lord veils himself is in one sense an act of mercy. And yet on the other hand, other hand this veiling is also at the same time an act of judgment. If you look down here at verse 18, a passage that we'll have to focus on uh, next week. We find that true transformation only happens if one does see the Lord. So you know the, the situation that Israel has herself caught on. On the one hand, she can't fully see the Lord and survive the judgment ordeal. On the other hand, if she doesn't see the Lord, she will not be transformed. And this is the situation that Israel finds herself in. If Moses' veil is removed, Israel is destroyed. But on the other hand, so long as the veil remains, Israel remains unchanged. She remains hardened in her own particular sin stance. Caught between the, the, the proverbial rock and a hard place. They're not destroyed, but they're not changed either. They're kind of held in, 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 some, something that, in limbo of sorts. So Moses' ministry under this old covenant is declared rightfully by Paul to be a ministry of condemnation. They continue to be hardened. It continues to harden Israel in her sin. You see this here in verses 14 and 15. We see Israel's response to Moses' ministry. Their minds remained hardened. Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 4, which we had read. I've not given you a heart to hear, to understand. We recall Israel, what were they doing when Moses descends the mountain to give Israel the law of God finally? What were they doing? They fashioned a golden calf, two golden calves. Said, oh, these are the gods who have delivered us from Egypt. They're engaging in illicit sexual activities. This is not but 40 days after the giving of the law, and now they have openly rebelled against it. What we see is this hardening is not an intellectual problem. The solution is not simply to have more Sunday school classes, as it were, for ancient Israel. It's not simply an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. Their hearts remain hardened. The solution is not more education. What the, the need is, is a need for moral and spiritual renewal. A need for real transformation, something that can only be accomplished by the work of the Spirit. And that is Deuteronomy 29 in a nutshell, as it gives you a single chapter summary of the life of the entire nation of Israel up until the first coming of Christ. Deuteronomy 29 summarizes Moses telling them that the curse of the law will fall on you if you remain in your sin. Just as the plagues fell upon Egypt, so will these plagues of the covenant fall upon you, leading you to exile from God's very presence. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8, do not do what is right in your own eyes. Deuteronomy chapter 29, do not say I will be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. And yet what is it that we see throughout the life of the history of Israel? Judges, every man doing what? Doing what is right in his own eyes again and again and again until the downward spiral brings you to those final chapters where Israel looks just like Sodom. You see the idolatry continue in 1 Samuel what happens? The glory departs as the Ark of the Covenant is taken away. The Lord gives a king. 
And yet what we find in First and Second Kings is this repeated genealogy, a succession of apostate kings leading a divided nation into apostasy and ruin. And spoiler alert for Second Kings, it does not end on a good note. It ends with the people of God in exile. You have the repeated warnings of the prophets. Mend your ways. Repent. Turn before it is too late. And what happens? Israel refuses. And so what happens? They are led into exile. The line of kings is shattered. No king sits on the throne for several centuries. They're exiled from their land for 70 years. And even when they do return, the problem persists. As Nehemiah says in chapter 9, we are still slaves to this day, even though we are in our own homeland. When we make our way to the first century, the situation has not gotten any better. You read the Gospels, and what is it that is so different when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? There's a superabundance of demonic activity. Demonic activity that you don't find in any other book in the Old Testament. It seems as though the demonic hordes have now set up shop. Not just the Roman army, but the forces of hell itself have, have gathered around and set up camp in the nation of Israel. The Pharisees, being the gatekeepers of the law, only give the veneer of law-keeping, but they don't know how the law is to be applied to the heart. They use the law to get their own way, to profit and to feed off the young, and to devour the sheep. So what does Jesus tell the people of his day? Not simply that they are like Sodom, as we see in the book of Judges. It actually says you are worse than Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah were to see uh, the works being done, that have been done before you today, they would turn and repent and believe. But you just yawn. That's Paul's language here in verses 14 and 15 twice. Notice this repeated phrase that Paul gives. And Israel remains hardened to this day. Paul is giving a short summary of the spiritual condition of the nature of Israel. It's not gotten any better. The situation has not changed. Israel has been as hard-hearted as they were at Sinai. And so Paul says, whenever the Old Covenant is read, the veil remains. There is still a hardening aspect. There is still a judgment, a ministry of condemnation and death that persists under the Mosaic economy. Under the Old Covenant, the ministry of death continues because why? The law is unable to deal with sin. It does not get at the root of the problem. It does not address the heart. It exposes what your final verdict should be on the last judgment, but it is not able to take away sin. The law cannot deal with sin. There's a sacrificial system that is put in place, but because of that repetitive nature, as we see in Hebrews, not even the blood of bulls and goats can effectively deal with sin. They're the schematic that points to the great work of Christ that will be accomplished. But in and of its own right, it is not able to reckon with the real problem we see this repeated refrain in the book of Deuteronomy, you have circumcised bodies, but you need to circumcise your very hearts. That is what the sign is intended to signify. It's a circumcision of the heart. And here we find Paul saying that the veil remains over the hearts of Israel. In other words, Israel is still not transformed. Deafened ears, stiff-necked, and Hard-hearted. 
And we see elsewhere that there's a further hardening that takes place, not just for Israel, but for the nations. We read in Romans chapter 1, as man, the, the worst thing that could ever happen is if a man is given over to his sin. To be given over to the very sins that you, uh, that you fester and swim in is itself an act of judgment because it continues to harden and harden and harden until you cannot be softened. And the only thing that remains is the coming wrath of the living God. Israel had not only failed to grasp the glory of the new covenant, the old covenant pointed to the new covenant. They failed to see that the old covenant was pointing beyond itself. That it was pointing to a great high priest who would make a once for all sacrifice for sin. They failed to grasp not only that, but they failed to grasp the nature of the old covenant itself. The old covenant pointed to its own insufficiency. As we've looked at over the past several weeks, and yet Israel fails to recognize it. Rather, what is it that they're doing? They're treating the animal sacrifices as a lucky rabbit's foot. A get-out-of-hell-free card, as it were. Deuteronomy chapter 9, I'm safe. Though I remain in the stubbornness of my own heart, what is Moses' word of warning to the people of Israel there? Watch out. Under Jeremiah, the same problem persists as the people go, ah, oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. We'll have our temple sacrifices, and then we'll go out and sin as much as we want. The Lord says to Isaiah, the whole head is sick. This is what you treat the sacrifice. So I do not delight in sacrifices, but what? I delight in obedience. I delight in mercy. So what we see here is this veiling is not simply an allegory. Paul is not just simply ripping a particular uh, uh, incident in the life of Moses out of context. He is saying that this veil that Moses has over his face represents and summarizes the totality of Moses' ministry. It describes Moses' ministry as a prophet. And that it is a ministry of condemnation and death because so long as Israel remains untransformed, she remains hardened in her sin. And as Paul says here, the veil continues to this day. But, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. See, now I think we're in a position to understand what Paul has meant in verse 12. When he says that we are so bold, again, I think it's better to translate this, we proclaim with old openness. The contrast that Paul is giving here is between his ministry and that of Moses'. Moses' veiled ministry was a ministry of judgment, a ministry that leaves Israel hardened in her sin because it does not get to the heart of the matter. And yet Paul's ministry is open-faced, as it were. It is an unveiled ministry. It's not a ministry of condemnation and death. Rather, it's a ministry of righteousness and life. In verses 17 and 18, which we'll look at next week, it is a transformative ministry wrought by the Spirit in beholding God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ by faith. One where it's not the external features that are transformed, but it's a renewal of the heart from glory to glory to glory. But it does leave us with a problem here. A problem that we face and a problem that uh, Paul himself will address. How can one behold the glory of God with an unveiled face and not be destroyed? 
How can one see God and live? Remember the Lord's words to Moses, no man could see my glory, no man could see my face and live. How can the Holy Spirit transform a sinner without the sinner being utterly destroyed in wrath and judgment as this is the spirit of holiness and we are sinners? How can the tongues of fire descend upon the saints at Pentecost and they not be consumed in judgment and wrath? The question that Acts 2 at Pentecost is positing. It can't be done under Moses. It cannot be done under the Old Covenant. But this is what makes the New Covenant so much better. This is what makes the ministry of the Spirit so much more glorious. Under the Old Covenant, only one priest could enter once a year, on one day a year, to offer one sacrifice a year, and that is it. Nothing else, nothing more. And even as he enters behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, it is clouded in incense that he might not see the Lord. And yet under the New Covenant, we are told that because we have such a high priest who has offered up himself once and for all as a sacrifice for sin, that sin has been dealt with once and for all. And so a better covenant has been established. The temple veil has been torn in two. Not so much signifying man's access to God that that is true, but if you read the Gospel of of Mark and the rest of the, the synoptics. What happens when the veil is torn in two? The Spirit bursts forth from the temple. The first thing that happens after the temple veil is rent is what happens. You have a Roman centurion, a Gentile, confessing that what? Truly this was the Son of God, demonstrating that the work of the Spirit has now begun to go out across the face of the earth. That now that Christ, having ascended on high, pours out His Spirit, the Spirit comes not in judgment, but in salvation. A spirit of holiness that now, through the ministry of the Word, effectually calls and draws people to it, to Him, to Christ, to a great and triune God, to turn to Christ by faith rather than remaining dead in our sins and trespasses. So that, as Paul says here, when one, whenever one turns to the Lord in repentance and faith, that veil is removed. In other words, that hardness is broken. The ministry of judgment stops because the ministry of mercy and righteousness and life is manifested in the person of Christ. It is only through Christ that this salvation comes. Only one way of salvation from the coming judgment. And by salvation, I mean this, both the pardoning of sin and also the cleansing from sin. It comes through only one way. It does not come by our own intellectual fortitude. It does not come by our own book learning does not come by our own personal righteousness or strength. It only comes by a righteousness that is received through faith alone. If it's not contingent on our own works, then there's the good news that this message goes out to whosoever will, that anyone who turns to the Lord, anyone who calls upon His name will be saved. That the hardness will be removed, that sin will be dealt with once and for all. We find that man's problem is ultimately not an intellectual problem. Man's problem is more foundationally a moral problem. His heart has been corrupted by sin. His entire being has been enslaved to sin. 
where his thoughts, his attitudes, even his very affections are twisted and contorted to love the very things that the Lord opposes. Augustine will call man, and Luther will call man, a, a man who has turned in on himself. It's a bent stick. Our condition deserves nothing but condemnation and wrath. And if, this, if such a person, if any of us were to see God in such a condition, without a mediator, we would surely die. And yet the good news we have here is that we have not been left without a mediator. We have Christ, who reigns on high as our great high priest, on account of the fact that he has given us his spirit, we can now have our hearts truly transformed. See, in the gospel, there's a real transformation that takes place so that we could come clean and open and transparent with our sins, knowing that in Christ, this sin has been dealt with once and for all, and we will be received, sinners though we are, by a holy and merciful Savior. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the ministry that you've given us under this covenant, this better covenant, a ministry that we're about to uh, uh, um, enjoy even more fully in uh, uh, the, the table ministry of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper. We ask that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts and transform our hearts from one degree of glory to another, that you would continue to sanctify us, that we might look more and more like Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.